Hello and welcome to the Nirvana Principle show. This is a mental health radio show and I'm Dr. Hassan Malik. I'm a psychiatrist based in London. I'd like to wish you a very happy new 2023 and I hope this year brings only good things for you. I've talked about refugees in the past using music in the Collective Conscience series on Melodic Distraction Radio and we've been talking about trauma in the previous episode and I think this today's topic which is refugee mental health is a good follow-on from there. Just a heads up that we're going to be talking about things like human trafficking, torture and some of the things might be difficult for you to hear so please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. Before we begin both myself and my guests are part of organizations however any views we express today are part of our personal opinion and what we talk about is a general discussion. You shouldn't think of it as specific medical advice. Last but not least, I'd like to give a shout out and thank you to the research team behind this episode, in particular, Dr. Ali Salim Mangi from Karachi and Dr. Sheryar Azim from the Republic of Ireland. My guest for today is Professor Cornelius Katona. He's also a psychiatrist. Officially, he's an old-age psychiatrist. He also works with the Helen Bamber Foundation, which is a charity which advocates for human, human rights for asylum seekers and refugees. He is also involved with the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He's the lead on refugee and asylum mental health. Recently, he's also uh, part of the Wolf Foundation, uh, as part of the Commission of the Integration of Refugees. Lots of titles, and, and he is someone who has a wide breadth of experience, both as a researcher, as well as a clinician and advocate. However, today, he's here, he's taken his time out, as uh, and he's speaking in a personal capacity, and I'm keen to share with you his his knowledge, and we're going to talk about the different dimensions of the mental health of refugees and asylum seekers and also touch a bit about the the toll that it takes for caring for uh, individuals with mental health problems or conditions on psychiatrists and other professionals hello cornelius hello and uh, thank you for taking your time out today i've i've told a little bit about you but can you tell me what your journey's been like? How how you uh, reached where you are today? Was was um, refugees and asylum mental health were, were those things that was always something you were interested in? I'll give it a try. Um, I've wanted to be a doctor since I can remember, and I became interested in psychiatry and mental health. As an undergraduate in Cambridge, I had an opportunity in my third year as a medical student to do a year not doing something fully related to medicine. And I did um, a year of social psychology and I found it absolutely fascinating. And I, that sort of led to my commitment to working in mental health. Having said that, my, I suppose, looking back, my personal commitment to um refugees stems from my own background. I'm the child of refugees. My parents were Hungarian, they were Jewish, they fled 
from Hungary before the Second World War um, had very different but quite complicated journeys to get to the UK, which offered them sanctuary. Um, and looking back, I guess that that must be a large part of the reason why I've ended up working in this particular area. But for most of my professional life, I was um, a full-time academic working in old age psychiatry. Um, I started dabbling in refugee and asylum mental health as a volunteer visitor in a detention centre. I then started being asked to write expert reports in the refugee and asylum context and the momentum grew and it's now become my full-time work. We'll go for a short break and we'll be back and we'll talk about the lingo and how kind of understand the language of talking about refugee mental health and the kind of terms that are thrown around or are read and later on we can talk about what you mentioned complex post-traumatic stress disorder and the different mental health conditions in refugees
just doing some research about the show, there were quite a few terms which I read about. Some people called it refugees. There's also asylum seekers. It, it, what is the correct term to use? Or are these individual, uh, are these distinct categories or are they all part of the same narrative? I think there are lots of terms used and the problem is that some of the terms have fairly precise legal definitions in UK and in international law. Some of these terms are also used with, um, if you like, political or emotional content, uh, sometimes criticising people for uh, being whatever they might be, asylum seekers, migrants, whatever. So I think that for me personally, it's easiest to think about the notion of people who seek sanctuary or protection and people who are granted sanctuary or protection in another country. But we need to remember that there are huge numbers of people who are displaced. Some are displaced within their country, some are displaced to neighbouring countries, some are displaced much further. There are people who seek protection, seek recognition as needing protection in a new and host country. There are those who are granted such protection and they are often termed refugees. Though in fact, some will be granted a different form of protection, human rights protection, as opposed to protection under uh, the framework of the Refugee Convention. So the terms are, I think they are overlapping. They're not always helpful. Um, but the concept of needing protection, seeking protection, being granted protection, or sanctuary as an alternative word for protection, I find that a bit more helpful in my own thinking. I, I mean, migrations has been going on since forever, whether it's back back in the day and our early ancestors going, let's say, from uh, Asia to Europe or early civilizations where I'm from in Pakistan. So Indus was, Indus civilization was one of the first ones and people migrated out. Um, again, the same example, uh, you give the example of your of your parents uh, seeking refuge in another country during, during, uh, during World War II. I think things were a bit more uh, clear then, where there was much more distinct things, where there was the allies and, and the access, or f um, f uh, f in, there was Pakistan, India, there was Muslim and Hindu, and you kind of knew where you wanted to go. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the modern world and the contemporary world? What, how do you, how would someone choose where to go? I, I know you don't want to be where you where you are, but what do you decide, or do you think the UK in particular, for example, um, or the West, if that's not too broad a term, is generally where most people migrate? Well, an awful lot of people migrate, and people migrate back and forth, and they may migrate for work reasons, for more general mm -hmm. economic reasons, but they may also migrate because the conditions where they are are intolerable because of persecution, because of war, because of climate change. Um, and part of the problem is that for an individual, those things may coexist. So there may not be a single 
reason for moving. It may be a combination of things. Um, but I think it's important to remember that there are a substantial group of people who flee, who escape, who are going away from something which is intolerable for them rather than uh, making, if you like, a, a self-indulgent choice. Um, mm. So where people are escaping, the element of choice is very much narrowed. It, it's, it's a notion of escape or perish. So currently, just some facts and figures. So uh, under the United Nations High Commissioner for, for Refugees, uh, as of 2019, there's 20.4 million refugees, um, about 45 million internally displaced people. Uh, recently, uh, in, in Pakistan, with, with the floods, their whole communities and villages destroyed, and now people are just... They're within the same country, but now they've had to move. Like you mentioned, climate change is a strong factor there. Just looking at the figures, I stand corrected. I, I was saying about about the West, but right now the country with the most refugees is Turkey. And uh, I think w with the uh, current crisis in Syria, that makes sense. Number three is Pakistan, I, uh, just, just growing up for me as well. So seeing an Afghani refugee was was commonplace, and 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 there's different levels of acceptance into that society. Uh, it, it generally, even even where I'm from, so uh, an Afghani person, if you see them, they're usually they're a lot of kids. A lot of them are trash collectors. A lot of them do very menial jobs. Um, I'm interested in. You mentioned that you you're part of this new commission for integration. Tell me what that integration means. Well, there are, I mean, integration is, is multifaceted, but the, the main notion of integration is, is fitting in, becoming part of the new society in the country to which you have um, arrived and to which you may or may not have been welcomed. Um, and I think the it may almost be more helpful to think about what integration isn't. So where people experience very prolonged delays in being granted protection, but are then granted it, there are huge consequences of that delay. So they may not be able to work. They may become de-skilled. They may um, become destitute or near destitute they may find it very difficult to access support, to access health care. Uh, they may become very distressed and isolated. They may resort to drugs or alcohol as the only way of alleviating their distress that they have. They may become criminalized. All of these things go against any subsequent integration. And so I suppose what I would argue, and some of the things that uh, we're exploring within the Commission is the notion of whether one can conceptualize integration as something that happens early. It happens at the point, begins to happen, or potentially could begin to happen, not so much at the point where people are um, 
granted protection, but at the point where they first seek it. Uh, we know in the UK that the great majority of people seeking protection in the end are granted it, 75-80% or so. So most of these people will get protection, but after a great deal of delay. So then the question becomes, are there things that could be done not only once they get protection, but in the intervening period, A, to make that intervening period shorter, and B, to make that intervening period less destructive or more constructive. So, for example, thinking about access to work, thinking about access to language learning, thinking about ensuring that there are as few barriers to um, education and to healthcare as possible. All of those things are likely to facilitate subsequent integration or, to put it more negatively, more less likely to prevent successful future integration. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about how, how we help uh, asylum seekers and, and refugees uh, in, in one of our later segments. You mentioned the delay in or, or the waiting. So the images that I have in my head while you say that is, is for example, kids at the Mexico-US border. They're being held in, in these areas. Um, I'm, I'm not too familiar with, with what goes on in, in the UK, but I'm, I'm sure there are detention centers a, as well. Is that a common theme across, across nations, across countries, where, where there's, there's a period where you are basically in limbo, where you're not, you've already fled a different country, and, but you're not sure if you're being accepted to, to the new place that you've come into? I think there's two important themes there. One is the theme of limbo. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that people who seek sanctuary very often have long delays before they are granted that sanctuary or before a final decision is made that they're not granted that sanctuary. And that period of limbo of uncertainty is very difficult and very distressing and people are unable to... Um, to form friendships, form relationships, uh, learn skills, settle into work. All those things can't happen in the limbo situation. Now, detention is a subset of that. So many countries detain people in the process of deciding their asylum claims. In the UK, we detain people more often than I think any other European country, and we're also the only European country that has no statutory limit on the duration of detention. So detention is without limit. And although many people are only detained for relatively short periods, there's a substantial minority that are detained for six months, three years, even for several years. And detention can have adverse effects on mental health over and above those of the more general uncertainty, limbo situation that we were talking about earlier. There, there, was, another, there was another term uh, which I came across, quasi-detention. Uh, can you tell me about that? Is that what you're talking about, where there's um, being in limbo? What does that term mean? Okay, well, I was, I was talking specifically about detention, where people are locked up in situations which are very similar to prisons, although 
the function is purely administrative to process their claims as opposed to the multiple functions such as punishment and deterrence and rehabilitation which prisons have. So none of those apply in immigration detention. The term quasi-detention has been used in the last few years for the institutional and irregular accommodation in which a lot of asylum seekers are placed. Now, the problem is that there is a shortage of accommodation that is designed for that purpose. So we used to have, and we still have, a system whereby people who come seeking protection are placed in short-term hostel-like accommodation for a few weeks and are then dispersed around the country into longer term, but relatively domestic type um, accommodation. That is all full, and it's full mainly because there's a huge backlog of asylum claims um, for a variety of reasons, partly to do with the pandemic, um, partly to do with increased numbers of arrivals in the last year, particularly the people that have arrived on small boats who've been uh, very much publicised, um, but partly also because the Home Office has found it very difficult to process the large number of claims that were not dealt with during the pandemic. And so there is a huge backlog. There's a much larger number than in the past of claims that have been undecided for six months or for a year. And so that means that standard, normal asylum accommodation is full and that other solutions have been found and those are places like uh, disused army barracks or hotel accommodation um, which are relatively closed relatively isolated from the community and where and relatively institutionalized and so those are sometimes known as quasi-detention uh, sorry, you mentioned institutionalized. What, what does that mean? Well, people don't live in domestic circumstances. So if, for example, you are in a barracks in a dormitory or if you're in a hotel in a single hotel room, but there's no uh, communal space um, and where you're monitored going in and out, that feels much more like an institution than a home. So what what I'm, the picture I'm getting and uh, just doing some research for the show, uh, the, the kind of literature uh, I was reading, a lot of work has been, I mean, there's a whole, I feel this is a complex topic and there's a whole narrative about just being in a different country, whether that's by your choice, whether you're migrant seeking a job or you're a refugee. But a lot of the work and a lot of the mental health problems in particular are in detention that's where um, that's where the kind of the suffering increases. Would, would that be a fair statement? I would agree with that in part. I think there is a wealth of evidence that refugees have a higher have higher rates of mental illness and in particular of some mental illnesses than the population in the host country or the population in the country whence they came. And the particular high rates are of 
post-traumatic stress disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. We also know that, and this is from multiple um, studies in many, many countries, that people who are detained while their asylum claims are being determined or preparatory to their being removed from the country, those people have yet higher rates of depression or post-traumatic stress disorder and also higher rates of deliberate self-harm. So there is an increased rate of mental illness in detention compared to that in refugees and asylum seekers as a whole, which in turn is higher than that in the rest of the population. Is there a protocol or some, some kind of avenue where at least, for example, we can talk about the UK in particular, um, that, that these uh, problems are addressed? Okay, I mean, the first point I'd make is that we need to remember that a lot of people who seek sanctuary, not only have they had problems in the country that they have fled, yeah. they may have huge problems during what is often a very long and very complicated journey during which they may be further traumatized, they uh, may be abused, they may be exploited. And there's then a whole set of problems, which we've already touched on, um, that they may face in the country where they finally seek sanctuary. So in that country, they may have a long period of uncertainty, they may have difficulty accessing care, they may feel very isolated and so on. So there's a whole set of problems before, during the journey and once the journey is over. So that's point one. The second point, I think, is that it is difficult for people to access mental health care in the countries to which they arrive. I mean, one obvious difficulty is language. A second obvious difficulty is stigma. A lot of people may be reluctant to admit either to themselves or to others that they have mental health problems. And a third difficulty is that they may feel unwelcome. They may feel that there's hostility. They may feel that there's disbelief. They may seek care and be rejected in the care that they are asking for. One other point that I'd make is that I don't want to give the impression that everybody who comes to a new country or particularly comes to the UK seeking sanctuary, that everybody has a mental illness. It's somewhere probably between a third and a half that have a diagnosable mental illness. A lot of the others will have some mental symptoms, um, but not a diagnosable mental illness. And whether or not one develops an illness depends on a whole load of things. It depends on previous experiences. It depends on personality. It depends on the experiences during the journey and following arrival. People, it's not a word I like, but it may be useful. People do vary in how resilient they are. And the circumstances that they then find themselves in may support or may destroy such resilience as they have. There, I feel it's, it's also important to understand what specific problems refugees go through. Um, I know there's, uh, there's two, two major ones, at least that I can think of. One is human trafficking. 
uh, one is torture. And can can you tell me what your experiences have been working with individuals who've, who've suffered that? I should emphasize that the people that I see tend to have had more than the average amount of trauma because that's why they come to the Helen Bamber Foundation where I work. We work with survivors of extreme human cruelty um, and we have a pretty high threshold for taking people on. Similarly, in my independent work, most of which is writing expert psychiatric reports which inform the decision whether people are granted leave to remain uh, or in the courts where they've been refused and where the court decides whether or not that was a correct decision. So the information that is provided in those expert reports can be helpful. But the point that I'm making is that both in my work at the foundation and in my work as an expert report writer, I tend to see people where there has been relatively severe trauma and you know it's not a random um, thing that they are referred to see me. Um, so I see a lot of people who have been tortured. I see a lot of people who have been victims of or who have survived human trafficking or modern slavery. I also see people who are victims of gender-based violence, of particularly extreme war violence, who have been forced to be child soldiers, for example. Uh, I just wanted to clarify a couple of terms. I, 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 like my goal is kind of to de to delineate between the common use of, of, of something and what you say in a professional capacity, what, what do you mean by torture? What, what, what is? All right. I mean, torture is physical or emotional or sexual violence perpetrated by an agent of the state in order to achieve control or to obtain information. Now, that's, I've probably not defined it very accurately, but it's, there's a fairly narrow definition of what constitutes torture, which is why I think it's more helpful to talk about the broader notion of torture or in other forms of inhuman or degrading treatment. Um, and those are experiences which are in international law recognized as rendering people um, entitled to international protection. One of the areas of work that I've been involved with and that the Helen Bamba Foundation has been involved in is looking at the commonalities, if you like, between torture on the one hand and other forms of human cruelty, but most particularly human trafficking on the other. And what we tend to see is that people who've been tortured and people who've been trafficked have a lot of things in common. What they have in common is that they have been confined for long periods, they have been ill-treated for long periods, often in multiple and repeated ways, and that their psychological responses to that multiple and repeated trauma is very similar. So although torture and trafficking are not the same, their consequences are very similar. 
Tell me more about these consequences. Well, a lot of the people that my colleagues and I see who have suffered torture or who have suffered trafficking, um, and I should say that's trafficking for sexual exploitation, trafficking for enforced work, trafficking for enforced criminality, and the boundaries between those are also blurred. People are often, people who are trafficked are often subjected to more than one of those forms of trafficking. So those people who've been trafficked, those people who've been tortured, very often have post-traumatic stress disorder, by which I mean that they have um, intrusion phenomena, they have intrusive thoughts that they can't get rid of, they have nightmares related to their past trauma, um, they sometimes have flashbacks as if the trauma was happening again in the here and now, they may see or hear elements of that trauma or feel people touching them. They may have avoidant behaviours. They may try and distract themselves from their intrusive thoughts. They may avoid reminders of their trauma. For example, people who've been trafficked for sexual exploitation, women who've been trafficked may avoid all contact with men. People may avoid... Uh, news about their country. They may avoid watching footage about war or about violence. Um, and they may be hyper-aroused, hyper-vigilant. They may feel that people are following them. I often ask people about that and they say, yes, when I'm going to the shops, I keep looking behind me. I just think there's somebody there. And then I look and there's nobody there. So those are the typical features of post-traumatic stress disorder. There's another condition known as complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which has only recently been officially recognized as a diagnosis. And complex post-traumatic stress disorder has all the features of post-traumatic stress disorder, but in addition, there are a set of what are collectively known as disorders of self-organization. And the key elements of that are a change in one's concept of oneself. One sees oneself as damaged, guilty. One feels a sense of shame. One feels that one is less worthy than other people. People tend to have difficulties in forming and maintaining relationships. They tend to be very avoidant of relationships. And they tend to have difficulty in managing their emotions. In particular, they may have difficulty controlling their anger. They may be uncontrollably aggressive or irritable. And they may, be, they may have difficulty in controlling their sadness. They may be tearful at relatively little provocation. So it's that set of things, the PTSD and the disorders in self-organization, which make up complex PTSD. And the research evidence suggests that complex PTSD is much more likely to occur where the trauma was multiple, where it was repeated, 
and also where it occurred relatively early, so during childhood and adolescence or in early adult life. And a lot of the literature on complex PTSD is about people who've suffered sexual abuse or uh, domestic violence in childhood. But the point about torture and trafficking is that although it usually occurs in adult life, the consequences in terms of features of complex PTSD are very similar to those that are found following um, experiences like childhood sexual abuse. Um, that's a, that's a he heavy conversation, I think. There, there's a lot, I think just, uh, I, I feel there's a lot more we can talk about, about the different kind and the difficult experiences that individuals have when they're, whether it's through human trafficking or torture and um, I don't think it's within the scope of the show. I don't want to go into specific details just because of, of the kind of the platform we have. But I, I do feel that maybe it'd be good to take a short break and I want to come back and I want to talk to you about what we can do to help and the burden that it has on the carers as well. And, you know, for, for someone like yourself or anyone else working in, in charities or healthcare settings, and you hear all of these multiple stories of horrible things happening to, to people and what effect it has not on the individual trying to help them as well, which I think is, is not talked about as much as it should be. Back home There's a time 
You're listening to Nirvana Principal Show. My name is Cornelius Katona. I'm talking to Dr. Hassan Malik about refugee and asylum mental health. Cornelius, I wanted to ask you uh, what we can do to help ref- refugees, especially since a lot of the problems are actually sociopolitical in nature. And uh, what is your approach or what is your advice to, to people including psychiatrists who want to who want to help? I think it's helpful to try and behave in a trauma-informed way to bear in mind that it's very likely that these people have suffered significant trauma and that they should not be defined by that trauma um, and that they should not be defined by their symptoms. So it's helpful, for example, to think in terms of, well, what happened to you rather than what's the matter with you. Nonetheless, it's also important to bear in mind that they may well have diagnosable and treatable mental illness, as well as other illnesses, um, and to try and make sure that they are assessed as well and as systematically as possible, and that barriers to their assessment and their treatment are minimised. Um, so important to um, work with interpreters where necessary, important to think about different cultural presentations of mental illness, um, and important to listen in a non-judgmental way and not come too quickly to one's own conclusions. I think it's also important to remember that we are working within a legal and a political framework and that not everybody seeking protection is going to be granted protection and that is something that also needs to be respected but that we have to think as doctors about the potential consequences of prolonged uncertainty and we have to think about the potential health consequences, mental health consequences of what would happen if someone is returned to somewhere where they believe they will face torture or other bad things happening to them. 
Yeah, I think I, as I've as I've progressed in my career, uh, which I say maybe matured as a doctor. So initially, now my focus has kind of like shifted from the clinical part of care and more into the what should I say, the moral obligations of 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 a doctor. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're called the Mandela protocols, where any any individual, any doctor who's taking care of someone, whether it's in a prison or whether is taking care of someone, a refugee in a, in a detention center, it is still our job that if there is any kind of abuse there or if there is any kind of, um, I, I think abuse is the correct word, if there is any kind of abuse there for us to document that, to advocate for that, uh, for that individual and highlight it to the authorities. The feeling I got was that it was irrespective of what the outcome is, it is that we should, we still need to advocate and still need to highlight that this has happened to this person and they are suffering because of these reasons. I think that documentation and communication are vital in this area of psychiatry, in this area of medicine, just as any other. So if one has concerns, one needs to set them down, one needs to communicate them and one needs as far as possible to make sure that what one communicates is received, is heard. Um, having said that, we are we often cannot influence what subsequently happens or we are limited in how much we can influence that and that limited influence can be difficult. Um, we also may find ourselves in situations where we are so concerned about what is happening that we have to do something that is actually or equivalent to whistleblowing. And whistleblowing is a difficult thing to do because it can have consequences for oneself. I mean, the, this is entirely outside of the refugee and asylum con context, but there's been a lot of publicity in the last few weeks about what happened in the, as I understand it, in the hospitals trust in Birmingham, where a very large number of doctors who whistled blue were then reported by their employers to the General Medical Council as a sort of punitive measure to prevent mm -hmm. further whistleblowing. Now, that seems to me as an individual to be an absolutely terrible thing. And to highlight the fact that, you know, we have a responsibility where it is necessary to do so. We have a responsibility to call things out, to whistleblow. Um, and we also have to accept that what we try and do may not always have the effect that we think is necessary. So we may sometimes feel um, disempowered. Um, and there is a notion which I find quite useful, a notion of moral injury, which is where one, despite one's best efforts, sees what one considers to be bad things happening. And whistleblowing is one way of coping with that. But we have to remember that whistleblow or not, we may find ourselves seeing bad things happening, being powerless to change them. And that can be damaging to us. It can be damaging to us in much the same way as being exposed repeatedly to stories of trauma can be damaging. So moral injury and vicarious trauma, in my mind, are very closely related 
notions. And they're both things that doctors in general and perhaps doctors working in the refugee and asylum field may be particularly liable to. And so I think it's important, among other things, that we look after ourselves and that we look after each other. Um, and we need to think about things that reduce our stress, things perhaps like mindfulness techniques, taking exercise, taking short breaks, just like in this program. And we also need to remember that one important thing is to do our best, and we will often fail. But as Samuel Beckett says, we need to fail better. Well said. I, I, I would say I wanted to ask you a little bit more about vicarious trauma or vicarious suffering. It's still a new concept for me. Uh, can, can you just expand on it a little bit, please? The hearing or the seeing people describing very, very terrible things that can itself have an effect on the listener. So if I hear 10 or 20 or 100 stories of people being tortured, of course, it's not the same as being tortured myself, but it can be traumatic in itself. And it can cause a, a syndrome which is sometimes known as vicarious trauma in which people feel increasingly helpless, unable to control the situation, but may also become more cynical or indifferent um, and less efficient in their work. And so I think that we as individuals, and in particular as individual doctors, or you and I as individual psychiatrists, we need to be mindful that that is a risk for us. But I think it's also an important thing for organizations to remember that people who are exposed to multiple terrible things, and it's not just um, things like torture or trafficking, it may also be doctors in accidents and emergency departments who see multiple accident victims, multiple people with horrendous injuries, that can be vicariously traumatic in the same way. They are not physically injured themselves, but they are affected by seeing and hearing those injuries. So we need to look after ourselves. Our organizations need to support us in doing that. So, for example, time needs to be set aside for supervision, for breaks, um, People need to be respected if they are distressed rather than being told to pull themselves together. It's kind of a difficult balance between being compassionate and caring for someone else. But then after a little while, once you hear it, uh, once you hear these stories or these difficult things, you're exposed to it again and again. And then it seems sometimes it's also easy to internalize it. That, okay, maybe I'm affected by this. Maybe I'm not a good enough doctor or not a good enough psychiatrist. Maybe I should be better trained that this doesn't affect me. But but I think that's discounting the human nature of, of, of an individual person. There is a professional rank to you and I, but we are also human and we are uh, affected by this. Yes. And, and one of the uh, one term that I find quite useful in that concept is, is the notion of compassion fatigue, that the, the danger is that we become so 
used to hearing bad stories that we think, well, that's not as bad as what I heard yesterday, or that's only, you know, minor or moderate trauma, whereas actually, you know, we are hearing individual stories, we are hearing stories of great sadness and pain, and it's not a competition. So we we have to we have to preserve our own compassion and if we feel that our compassion is draining away we need to think about why that should be and what we should do in order to preserve it in order to stop ourselves becoming cynical and world weary we're nearly nearing the end of our time together i just wanted to quickly ask you it might be a slightly difficult question i'm i'm mindful that that you do that you are involved with multiple multiple bodies um uh, but uh even asking for myself i feel there's a lot of um we'll just use refugee mental health as uh, as an example there's a lot of narrative around what the government things like rwanda uh whether that's even for in my home country in pakistan where um what what is what what is the view towards afghani refugees or refugees from war torn countries coming in any advice for someone what what is the viewpoint for a professional because it i do i think it would be naive to think that the socio political atmosphere or the politics don't affect our our healthcare whether it's how much budget there is for something or what is the new what are the new guidelines for something as per the government's rules um any advice for those who who are working in in in, in this uh, in this atmosphere well i think that it's important for us all to remember that we are working with individuals we're not working with a group we're not working with the refugees we're not working with those people who are trying to come into the country we're working with individuals who have individual stories and we have to listen to those stories non-judgmentally and come to our decisions about those individuals those people not those statistics and so the more we think about people and not numbers i think the easier it is to remember their humanity and maintain our own so that's about it for for our time uh, professor um um I know this is a very vast topic so th- thank you for uh, kind of sublimating it for myself and the listeners as well. Thank you so much Dr. Malik for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure working with you. I hope that this has helped inform and inspire you. It's certainly been a pleasure for me. Uh sometimes guests they leave uh some their twitter account or something any social media anything you uh want to promote or want to share well i would really like people to be aware of the work of the helen bamba foundation where i work i'd like people to be aware of the work of the commission on refugees which is working over a time limited period we should finish our work and come up with the report and recommendations by the end of next year and we will very shortly be um launching a call for evidence and anybody who wishes to uh, submit to that is welcome to do so so please look at the Helen Bamba Foundation website 
We'd be delighted if you could contribute. Please look at the Commission on Refugees website if there's any um, information, any knowledge, any insight that listeners would want to offer. Please feel free to do so. We're there to listen. It's going to be goodbye from me and Cornelius, and we'll meet again uh, next month, same time, on Melodic Distraction Radio. 